turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 115. Psalm 115, found on page 648. Before we read God's word, let's ask for his blessing. Father in heaven, as we turn to you through your word, we pray that you would speak to us here and now. And what we ask is what Moses asked on that mountain, to catch a glimpse of your glory, to catch a glimpse of your majesty and power. And not only so that we could have an image of your word in our minds, an image of your power through your word delivered, but that especially catching a glimpse of you would transform who we are. Catching a glimpse of you would make us proud to be yours, proud to be your children, proud to be your subjects who worship you and you alone as God. There is no greater devotion than that. And we know just by catching a glimpse of you, this will be achieved. For you are powerful and mighty. You are worthy. We praise and pray this to you in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Ascends the reading of God's word. The title to this sermon is Clash of the Gods. Clash of the Gods. Why would I say that? Why would we say that as we look at this psalm? Because in this psalm, what's presented before us is the true God and the false gods. What's presented before us is God, the Eternal One, and false gods who would mock Him. Or really, what's going on here is the worshipers of the true God speaking to the worshipers of the false God, and we have a contest, saying whose father is better, as 
Some children might say, whose father's stronger? Who has a better job as they compete in that way? The children think the world of their parents and they argue in that way. Well, we'll, we'll make that a little bit more righteous, because that's not a, a good activity always. But if we understand this in a righteous way, what the people of the Lord are doing is to say, How dare you say of our God, where is he? How dare you say to us, where is his power? When you serve those gods, what we have here is the equivalent to what we might call today a mic drop. What is a mic drop? A mic drop in popular culture is when one has spoken, one has said an argument, or one has sung a song, whatever he has done in such an emphatic way that nothing else has to be said, and so you drop the microphone. You drop it. It is that, in one sense, a taunt, a taunt to any who would come up against you and say, top that. That's really what the psalm is before us. It's a mic drop from God through his people to all those who would deny the power of God. To all those who would deny who our God is, I must admit, I'm very excited to preach this psalm. I'm very excited to preach it because we get to see the, the majesty of our God in such a clear way. And in such a wondrous way that gives us a confidence. A confidence to know that this is the God we serve. And in the clash of the gods and the clash of the deities, there is one who stands firm. And there is one who will be victorious and one and those all others who will fail and fall, who can't measure up in any way. And it begins with a taunt from those who mock the Lord. We'll see in this psalm, our theme this evening is that all glory belongs to our God because he is and acts while others are impotent. All glory belongs to our God because he is, he exists he is the I am, everlastingly existing, and he acts, he chooses to act, while all others are impotent, unable, non-existent. We could shorten that theme to, our God is better. Our God is better. We see that in our first point, our God is better, so we give him glory. That's the initial request. That's how the psalm opens up. Look at verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. This functions as the expression of the people of God's desire as they're bringing before him the taunt of the enemy, which we'll get to in the next verse. They're saying, not to us, we don't need the glory. And that's, that's the, 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 the change of the children who are arguing about whose father is best. When they argue in that way, it's a proud way. They're trying to, to puff themselves up, in a sense, by their association. Here what we see is it's not for our glory. It's not for the people of God's glory. It's for God himself and his glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. You see that this petition is in direct result to what the nations say, as our psalm says. Why would the nations say, where is their God? That taunt gives us a likely explanation for what's going on here. We can't say this definitively, but it might imply that the situation of the people of God was at this moment a ra rather bleak. Rather questionable. This would likely explain why those who would come against the people of God would mock them and say, where is your God? How can you be in this situation if your God is so great? How can he allow you to be whatever it might be, in exile or persecution or famine or drought, whatever it may be? 
How can you claim that your God is so great? And so the heathens taunt them. They likely mock these circumstances and these believers. Where is your God? Clearly he's not powerful enough to help you in this situation. And to top it off, you can't even point to him. Is what they would say. That was a common insult thrown against God's people. They worship a spirit. They worship one who they could not image. They had no representation. They had no one to put before you and be able to see there is a representation of your God. They didn't have that. And so the nations could say, you can't even point to your God. Why would you serve him? And so they mock him. And thus the psalm is then a plea for help to the Lord But it's not a plea coming from weakness, as you'll see. It's not a plea coming from, oh no, and you're crouching, and we're attacked, and oh no, they're mocking us, and I don't know how to answer this as a confident plea from the people of God to turn to him who they know is powerful. To say, where is our God? Let me tell you. Let me tell you about where our God is, and let me tell tell you about your gods and where they exist. You see, this is a confident plea for help one that arises from the desire for God's name to be praised, for him to be glorified above all else. We find ourselves today in a very similar situation. That's why this psalm strikes so close to home today in in what is a sinful world and what are sinful taunts and mockeries against God himself. Where is your God, people will say today? He said he'd come soon. Where is he? The worldly wise will say, where is your God? They think they have an argument and a mockery against us that works and sticks. They say, you worship what you can't see, you Christians. You are all hypocrites. You have no proof for your God, and your ways are so inferior to our ways. Our ways are much better. Our ways are the ways of peace in this world. Our ways are the ways to true enjoyment. Our gods, though they wouldn't call them gods, they call them their ways, their beliefs, those achieve. Where's your God? Some of us struggle with assurance. Some of us struggle when we hear mockery of God, when we even hear that question, where is your God? Where's the proof for him? Show me. Well, for those of you who struggle in this way, this psalm is for you. And this psalm is for you not because God goes on lengthy proofs of his existence, but because this is a mic drop. What you need in your doubt are not further proofs. There are plenty. They're helpful. That's not what you need. You need to trust in the power of the God who responds in this psalm to these false gods, this clash of the gods. This is for us to hear the Lord speak and respond. This is for us to hear even as the psalm gives. It's the people of God responding. People of God speaking to their Lord. And the answer to life comes down to faith, not to proof. So notice the petition. They say not to us, but to your name be glory. And they say, for the sake, for for the sake of what? Why? That's what the psalm's saying. For the sake of what? Your steadfast love and your faithfulness. These terms are incredibly fitting for what they're going through. A people who are being taunted by the world saying, where is your God? And now this clash between the gods. The question really is, whose God is faithful? Whose God is steadfast? Whose God is loving? You don't just want a God who is. Who is this God for you? This is is the whole argument. Whose God will rise up and defend you? And we'll see that later in the psalm. Whose God is able? 
And so they praise God and for His glory, for the sake of His steadfast love and faithfulness that they see from God day by day. And then we see in verse 3, they immediately answer the people and the nation's charge. Verse 3 says, Where is our God? Well, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. To say that our God is a God in the heavens is to ascribe to Him the highest realm of power and might. And so in answer to their plea, where is your God? They're pointing against those who have earthbound gods who sit in their temples that cannot be moved. And they're saying, our God is not bound to this earth. Our God resides in the heavens. And then as the line goes on, and he does all he pleases. That's the whole point of contention. That's the whole point. Whose God can act? Our God reigns in the highest throne does all he pleases. He is above all. He sees all. He is our God who acts. Now that is a taunt back to the nations that they cannot answer. Their gods don't act. Their gods can't. So God's people say, how dare you? How dare you who worship the very formation of what you made. You fashioned these false gods and you worship them as divine. How dare you mock God and his people when he resides in heaven and does all he pleases. The God who acts. He is our God who acts. And so our first point, our God is better and so we glorify him. And our second point, our God is better while your gods are impotent. What does impotent mean? It means helpless, powerless. And we see it. I love these verses. These verses just give so much of a, of a bite to the attack back. And that confidence that God's people have to respond back, and we don't need to respond again in fear and doubt and say, yeah, you have a point. Can't give you these proofs. Yeah, you have a point. And instead, this is what they say. Verse 4 talks about their idols Although their idols are silver and gold, they're the works of human hands. That, again, cuts right back to the charge. You're worshiping gods that you had to construct. That you had to form and put precious metals around them, but they're nothing. They're something you made. Verse 5, your gods, they can't speak and they can't see. Verse 6, they have ears, but they can't hear. You've put ears on these lifeless dummies, but they can't hear. You fashion to them noses, but they can't smell. Verse 7, they can't feel, they can't walk, they can't even clear their throat. They can't even gurgle, is the point. Far from being able to speak, there's nothing going on in their throat. They can't make a sound. Those who have the audacity to mock the true God, worship gods who are bound to their hands who are mute, blind, deaf, senseless, and paralyzed. Sometimes we run in fear from the world's accusations, from what the world brings against us. And this psalm, I pray, would come to all of our minds when that happens. Thinks just how far superior our God is to what they even claim. We know the truth. There's nothing behind idols. 
There's nothing behind them. The highest and the best we could say about false gods is that perhaps there's a demon at work. Not a true God. The God who is and who acts. Our God is better while your gods are impotent. Now at this point, those who may have studied ancient religions would likely point out and say to us that this isn't an accurate depiction of idolatry. But they would say even then, back in those days, those worshipers knew that their God was not the thing they formed. And they would say and claim, see, God's word doesn't even accurately represent these false religions. They knew that those were not their gods. A couple things in response to that. First, how many actually understood this distinction? And the reason I say that is, when you see idolatry today, it's hard to separate the man-made image from what the people worship, from what the people see. So that's the first thing. For, how can you say that to these scholars who would claim this? How can you so separate it when the people and their worshipers have a hard time separating the image and what they've made from the God himself? But also the psalm is not interested in arguing these points. The psalm is rather pointing out the reality. The reality is the closest thing to the existence of their deity is what they formed themselves. That's the closest thing to their, their worship, to make it real. That's the closest thing for their God to act, a lifeless statue. And so God's word is treating it as it is. The idols only pre present to them what the truth of the matter is. There was nothing to represent. And what we see then, too, is as the psalmist and, and those believers in that day would have understood how pagans understood their religion, this is, again, likely a barb back, saying, you're mocking us for not having these formed idols. Well, what about you who have to make them? That's the likely answer for this, well, yeah, but aren't we misrepresenting them? Well, no, the God's word is responding in kind to their mockery, and it's also saying, but this is the matter of things, this is the truth of things, they don't exist. How much worse is idolatry today than it actually was then? Here's what I mean by that. The idolatry today does not claim a deity for the most part. Yes, obviously, there are nations world that do claim false gods, and that's very prevalent, but in our society at least, in the idolatry we see here, they claim no such deity. They claim no being. And instead then, what do they worship and serve? They literally serve creation. They literally serve the substances of the earth. They literally serve their own feelings, desires and what gives their bodies enjoyment and are thus enslaved to them. How much worse? They can't even pretend to worship something outside of themselves. They can't even pretend to worship something outside and instead worship the very thing the psalmist is mocking, the work of their hands. We see that in today, we see that so often. So when they say, where is your God, implying he doesn't exist, we see who the true fools are. They worship what they make. Today we see the same things, we see the same attacks against us in all manner of ways in culture. Christianity's got it wrong, your God is wicked, he's useless, he's an angry God. Or they so defame God and they make Jesus this teddy bear 
one who has no standards, one who would never turn anyone away, one who's removed of all justice. And they deny the truth. Most people deny that there is even a truth. Which is interesting, because you'd like to ask them, is that a true statement? I never understood how they can say that, but whatever. They'll deny truth. Deny its very existence. And so who, all, who are the few fools? This life is it. They would say, live it for your happiness. And if anyone has a problem with that, and if anyone disagrees with that, they should be ignored, cut off, and canceled, is the way that our nation speaks today. And the reason we read the psalm is for our response, the way we are to think through these things and in the attacks that come up against us, to have in our mind, this is the truth of our God. This is the truth of the matter. Verse 8 is chilling. Verse 8 gives the end of their idolatry. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Those who make their gods, those who serve their gods, become like them. Very chilling. It's foolish. It's true and it's sad. It's foolish to become like the gods you make who are blind, deaf, mute, and dumb. Foolish to become like the gods you've made for your own cravings and desires and to so serve them that you're enslaved to them and the more you serve them, the less that they give you any type of enjoyment and peace and so you far fall further and further into the worship of this non-thing that is hell-bent on destroying you. And I don't say hell-bent lightly, that's the reality. That's idolatry. How foolish. How true. Don't we see that today, that the nations and the world, they become what they worship? You have the sexual revolution that he has become and has always been a god of the nations and a god of people, but that is what is worshipped and was worshipped, and we see the effects of that today. We see the results of that in worshipping that activity and worshipping that, that falsehood. The world is destroyed and unhinged. And as a result of that very process, now look at their confusion. Look at the world's confusion. In worshiping this God, they've destroyed any understanding of marriage and gender. They've destroyed any fulfillment that there could be in a true God-glorifying marriage. We don't understand in our nation what gender is. There's a uh, popular documentary going around right now where the more conservative political host asks the question... Can you define what a woman is? I'm sure many of you have seen this or seen ads for it. And he goes around and asks many of these, these liberals, those who are defending this case, and they say, can you define what is a woman? And as the documentary goes on, it shows that they can't. And in fact, they walk in circles. There is no definition that they can provide, and everything that's provided shows that they have uprooted life itself for the sake of their gods, whether it is gender identity, sexual expression. I don't say that just so that we can mock them. That's not the point. It's not to mock them. It's to say how sad. Look at the fruit. Look at the fruit of sin. Idolatry. They become like the gods they make. But as God's words say, claiming to be wise, they became fools. We can't claim that, that we're wise, because we know better. But we can read this psalm and rejoice that we serve the God who is, 
and who acts and has saved us from that. Who has saved us from all this sin. And how sad, how sad to become like the idols you make. The sadness is really what this verse is saying. The way that they will most be like their idols is that they will be dead. Those verses are describing these idols as non-existent, as dead things. And so when verse 8 then swoops in at the end of that whole attack against idols and says they become like what they worship, they're saying they become dead and lifeless. Those who worship the gods of sex become sexual creatures dying on the gods they've made. Those who worship the gods of money die a death of greed, whether expressed in discontent, worthless wealth, or the pain of poverty. Those who worship the gods of happiness find hopelessness. Those who worship the gods of family and home will certainly lose them both in this life or to the grave. Those who worship self find a slave. The sadness of idolatry. And so we see then this is that fitting response. The response of God's people to say you have it wrong. Our God is in the heavens. Our God is he who acts. And the true fulfillment of this psalm, the true and greatest expression of this, would be the God who comes to man. The the best answer for where is your God is for us to rejoice and to say we can literally point at him. He walked this earth. He came to us. He had a mouth that spoke and ears that heard and eyes that saw. He could comprehend and he moved and chose and did all of these things. And that was true of him before he took on human form. We see this even here before Jesus came. Our God was in the heavens. He did all that he pleased. And yet we see that the the best answer to what they're saying to where is your God is Christ himself. Where is your God? He's come to us. We've literally seen him. God's people have seen him. So the psalm is really the contrast between impotence and Emmanuel. The psalm is really the contrast between impotence and Emmanuel. Our God is so alive. He just so is and acts that he literally could come to this earth and become one of us. We say, top that, idolatry and idols. So we see that our God is better, and so we glorify him. We've seen that our God is better because he acts, and now we see our God is... I skipped the second point. Our third point is our God is better now because he acts. He acts on our behalf. This is where this psalm shifts to verse 9. So you see in verses 4 to 8 the, the response back to those who would mock God and where he is. And then verse 9 and following, it shows the answer to the, re, to the request of the people. They had pled, not to us, but to your name. Show glory. And then in this re, we see the response. Verse 9 calls, and you see the progression. It says, calls Israel to trust. Verse 10, it says the house of Aaron. Verse 11, it says, those who would fear the Lord. So you have Israel, a call to trust, the house of Aaron, a call to trust, those who would fear the Lord. Calvin believes that this trust begins first with Israel in its broadest sense. All those who would be under the canopy of the people of Israel, of the community. 
And then it progresses to the house of Aaron, those who were the leaders and the guides, the spiritual guides of the people, those who were most responsible to, to direct people's attention to the trust of the Lord. And then it ends with those who fear the Lord. And Kelvin says that this is likely those who are the true believers. And so you have the broad category, God's people, Israel, the covenant community, centered a little more on the people of in charge, Aaron and his house, the priests, those who led them, and then finally, true believers fear the Lord, trust in Him. And we see, as Kelvin would say, these verses resume the point that the genuine worshipers of God have no cause to fear that He will forsake or frustrate them. They have no cause to fear this in their time of need because He is as much disposed to provide their safety as He is furnished with the power to do it. That's the answer to the, the claim and to our own fears. What about your God? Where is he? He is the God who is much disposed to provide for our safety as well as furnish with the power to do it because he is a God who is and who acts because he's quite frankly better. He's better. Better than anything else, better than any imagination, better than any imaginary gods you cannot conceive of a God who's great. It can't be done. And so trust in Him. Only our God is superior. Verses 9 through 11 then give that call to trust and to the acknowledgement of God's help. And then you see verses 12 to 13 show God's ability to bless. And again, I want us to direct us to the whole point. The psalm is saying, the contrast of the gods. Whose gods are able? Where is your God? And it's that our God is the one to be feared. And now it's our God and his ability to bless. He's able to bless the people. Even as the psalm began, we glorify God for the sake of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Because he is able to bless, and he does. And this gives us assurance to the house of Israel and to Aaron and to those who fear the Lord. Again, in this whole contrast and conflict of the gods, the God who is able to bless in these verses, it's said five times the word bless or blessed is used in this short section. Lest we forget that our God is able to and then the psalm says as well, he remembers his people. Look, he has a mind that works. He can remember his people. He remembers us. We are not forgotten. You are not forgotten by this God who acts. And then verse 16 says, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. What does this mean? Well, it's that he is creator. The psalm very clearly says that, that our God is creator. He resides in the highest heavens. And then it says, but the earth he's given to the children of man. He's then by doing this, declaring that the world is to be used as from him a gift to those he's given it to. And thus there should be praise that would rebound back to him as he has given the world for the children of man. The sole purpose of the giving of the world to man, and he did, he did give it to mankind, was that they would use it in such a way to praise him, to glorify him, to worship him. That's why the earth was given to man that he would recognize God as the father of creation. And so you see the generosity of this God who not only is able to create, contrasted to the false gods, but who's so generous that he gives the world to man. What a generous God. 
the man should then use it to praise him. But no, but then look at verse 17. You see, there is a meaning and a purpose here for this gift. But as verse 17 says, there's a limit to it. Praise the Lord while you may. Praise the Lord while there's time. Because while you're on earth, you can, but you can't when you're dead. The alien realm of Sheol, of silence, it's too late then. You see then that, that timeline. He's given us, he's given man the earth. But the only opportunity to praise him is now. For once you die, that's it. Now obviously not for believers. For believers we understand we'll praise him forever. But that's not where the psalm is getting at. It's getting at right now on this earth. Praise the Lord for death puts an end to that. You go down into Sheol and down into the pit. You can't do it anymore. Don't become like the gods you serve who are dead. The world worships impotent dead idols and will themselves become just like these dead, deaf, mute gods. But God's people have blessing. And as the psalm says, he's our shield. Able to defend, able to protect. And the psalm highlighting the difference between the actionless, worthless gods, Christ alone is the one who's the very action, word of power of God. So our response today, when we read this psalm, when we hear the mocking of the world, when we are confronted with any other option to supposedly serve as a deity, we know the answer, not to us, but to your name give glory. And so with our brothers who spoke in this psalm, we ourselves drop the mic. Enough said. There's no need to go further. There's no need to say more than this. God has spoken. His word is final because he is. He acts. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we come before you in awe as the psalm directs us to your power. In the clash of the gods we see there is only one. We see in the mockery of unbelievers and unbelief the sad reality that they are becoming the very corpses that they worship. We pray that you would save all those you've called to yourself and we know you will. And in this we rejoice. In this, we rejoice in your capacity and ability to act, to remember, to shield us, to bless us, to, to respond to our faith, to even gift to us faith, for we were dead and could not act. In you, we see that you are better. There is no better truth than that alone. As we depart from here, as we have begun a week on this day, and as we go out to live, may the truth of Psalm 115 not depart from us, that it's all for the glory of God, because you are better. And that, may we be assured, and as this psalm says, to Israel, to the house of Aaron, to those who fear the Lord, may we trust you and fear you in return. We pray this in our Savior's name.